All right, we're going to jump into Galatians 3 today. And, uh, you know, Galatians is kind of like a shorter version of, of Romans. And so um, I wanted to, things that we've kind of alluded to, we'll get to start talking about a little bit more in depth. And so probably take a couple weeks to go, go through Galatians 3. Um, but it ties in well to the things that we've been studying and we'll see that um, when we get into our study. Uh, so, trying to think, you know, if you think kind of like in your life and, and different friend groups that you've had uh, over the years, um, some may look back and say, you know, a recent group of friends is kind of the, the, the group of friends that you're closest with. Some may say, well, I go, can go back all the way to college or high school or, or even middle school. Maybe even even earlier than that. Um, so how how if we kind of like looked at like being accepted into that group of friends, how what did you do in order to make that happen? How were you accepted into your group of friends? My good looks. Your good looks. So. And everyone is good looking, or by far you outshine them all. So that, that, that remains to be seen. So, okay. So, uh, so what's the common denominator? Just okay. Uh, having having commonalities is that what you would kind of maybe boil it down to? Shared shared experiences. Okay. Sharing concern for each other. Okay. Um, have you ever had a time in your life where there's like a group of friends that you're like, I just want to be accepted by them and Peer pressure. just didn't happen? What's that? Peer pressure. Peer pressure. Um, so if, you, if you've been accepted by a group of friends, how do you stay within that group? How do you, how do you stay accepted? Yeah. Okay. And we could probably do like a, a, deep, a deep analysis into like what this looks like, but I just kind of want us to think like, how does that look? And for some, you know, you might say, even with a group of friends, is there anything like once you've been accepted, like you have your close knit, like what would it take to to not be accepted anymore? You know, some group of friends have been through thick and thin, and probably challenged one another, and and. Uh, upset one another, but yet you still look back and, and you're still friends um, nonetheless. And so uh, as we kind of like shift from that idea, you know, because friends are, are usually by choice. Um, I mean, I'd say usually, but sometimes it is you grow up together and, you know, but would you consider yourselves friends? Um, as we kind of think, what does it look like to be accepted by God and even to be accepted you know, within the church, like what, what does that look like? Now we're not going to like specifically address that question, but that's kind of the underlying current that's happening, um, within the passage of what we're looking at. And there are other passages that might deal with that, uh, more directly, but that's kind of like what's going on in the background. We'll, we'll look at that in just, just a second. And then Paul addresses some of that, 
Um, but it even goes beyond it because that's really not the issue at hand. And so last week we looked at 2 Corinthians 4. And, uh, you know, we saw that, that we as believers are a light for those that are lost, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, um, that we are to, to have this great honor to bring the gospel to others. But we understand that it's this power that we're able to bring, this treasure we're able to bring, uh, but to not be discouraged because those that um, reject the message, they do so because they are veiled in darkness. And it's really up to God to pull off that veil. And so knowing, again, that mission, knowing even the reasons for that, uh, that why people might reject it, should help us continue to push forward, even as we think of all of the things. And that's how kind of Paul wraps it up, right? These light momentary afflictions are waiting for us, have, a, have this eternal weight of glory that is waiting for us in heaven. And so that's kind of how we, how we ended last week, kind of looking at that passage in 2 Corinthians. Um, one of the passages that we've looked at, uh, I don't remember when we were at it, but you know, it would have been back when we were in Acts. We looked at Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. I remember the Jerusalem Council was an issue when believers, um, specifically Gentiles, were coming to faith. You know, how were those believers being accepted into the family of God, right? Being made up most, you know, mostly or really entirely of Jewish converts starting in Jerusalem. But then as it spread and Gentiles started becoming accepted into the fold, what were the things that they needed to do since Jews upheld the, the law of Moses, were there things that the Gentiles needed to do? And we looked at that, that chapter and looked at, you know, again, passages within that to kind of talk about the issue. But Paul is addressing this to the Galatians because even though this has happened after the, the Jerusalem Council had ruled that the Gentiles did not need to be circumcised and there was only a few things that they had recommended as far as eating foods that they may eat um, that were sacrificed uh, to idols um, and abstaining from some of those things and sexual immorality. Uh, but beyond that, um, we just kind of talked about it in general terms. But Paul is addressing this now to another group of believers that seem to be struggling with the same issue. And it's almost like, hey, we talked about this already. We've already put this to rest, but it's come up again. And it's fortunate that we can look at it because it's an issue that while we say like, well, it happened, you know, in Antioch, that was really the Jerusalem Council was kind of talking about what's happening there. Beyond Antioch and even you know, hundreds of miles away in Galatia, this issue is still happening. And even fast forward today, we'll look at how this kind of even impacts us as believers within the church. So let's start with uh, chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll get a little bit of background um, as we kind of look through this you know, paragraph by paragraph. We'll get through about half of it today. So Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you, you only, uh, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul says, oh, you foolish Galatians. All right, we're in the middle of Galatians, this, this uh, 
letter written to the church in Galatia in chapter 3. So why is Paul calling them foolish? Um, you know, why is he saying, who has bewitched you? Well, if you go back in chapter 1, we can see kind of the reason for that. In chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished, right? You know, the first few verses are, you know, greetings to the churches. It's kind of typical what he does in his letters. And he kind of right away hits, hits them with the issue that um, is burdening his heart. He says in verse 6 of chapter 1, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So you kind of ask the question, what was this different gospel um, that we see there in verse 6? And remember last week when we talked about 2 Corinthians 4, we said that um, the gospel right is veiled to those who are perishing. Um, but there are some that were in that Paul was trying to convince, and you see kind of, again, similarities, that when he's writing letters, there are people in the church, people that are um, maybe in places of leadership or say like, hey, I'm, I'm uh, you know, of influence, specifically teaching influence, um, whatever that looks like, whether it's a direct role, we don't know, or just kind of indirectly. But they're teaching certain things or saying certain things that are kind of pulling them off course. And there, Paul was saying that they were um, doing, you know, different things to the gospel. And we kind of talked about it last week, that, that a way that you can distort the gospel is you can add to the gospel, take away from the gospel, or change the gospel. And we see that similar thing, right, where Paul kind of addresses this same issue, that there is a different gospel that they are uh, being preached to. And so what was this different gospel where he shared that, you know, when he was, um, had just become a believer, that he was trained by Christ himself. And so the message that he's giving is the, the pure gospel, the gospel that Christ had given him. And we'll get to a little bit more detail um, in just a second. But there are those who are changing or adding to the gospel. And if you go down to chapter 2, in verses 11, Paul addresses a specific issue and he says in verse 11, but when Cephas, or you know, that's Peter, came to Antioch, he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's a, that's a pretty big statement. And remember, when Paul talked to the Corinthians, you know, Peter was one of the guys who he's like, hey, we're just ministry companions, right? And not one of us is better than the other. And so we really shouldn't be having factions or really shouldn't elevate one person over, over another and say, hey, I'm of Apollos or I'm of Paul or I'm of Peter. And so here, the same thing. But here, Peter was at fault. And he, he, he points this out because he reminds them of this incident that happened uh, when Peter came to Antioch. Again, Antioch, remember, was the place that had to been described in the Jerusalem Council. We looked at this passage a little bit, but it comes back, right, because now we're in, in Galatians itself. So he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So we ask the question, so what is this other gospel? This other gospel is the need to do something or um, not do something, maybe in this case, in order to truly be saved. Or what we kind of see here is to be accepted. Accepted within the community of believers. If you're not accepted within the community of believers, you're kind of like outside of the community of believers, which would almost say in some sense that you're not a believer. So there is this kind of connection. You know, if, if you, know, you want to come to, the, to church where the gospel is, is, is uh, shared, but there's something in your life that is excommunicating you uh, from that community, Right? What is it? Is it something that is a means of salvation or is it something else? Well, in this case, you know, Paul, Peter was withdrawing from these Gentiles and almost making them feel less than. And so Paul had to address that. And that, again, is something that happened in Antioch, same thing that was addressed in the Jerusalem Council, and is happening amongst them in Galatia that Paul needs to bring it up because these things that are being taught are things that he's seen before and doesn't want to lay root within this community of believers. So he says, you know, what is, um, uh, so he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified back in chapter 3, verse 1. So what does that mean? When Paul says, it was before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, what is he getting at? Because remember, he said, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And then he says this, that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified among you. What, is that, what do you think that means? Is it sort of like he's saying, you, you know, you received, this was the true gospel message, and, and, and now you're, you're backing off of that? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So the idea of just it being publicly portrayed is like, hey, everybody heard it. Everybody saw exactly the message that I preached. And what was the central focus of the message that I preached of this gospel was that Christ was crucified. Now, in other places, when we've gone to different chapters, right, when we went to 1 Corinthians 15, we talked about the resurrection. We wanted to make sure, like, the resurrection was not a missing piece of the gospel. Because what typically is the focus when we share the gospel? Right. You know, G, you know, John 3.16, right? That for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right. So this idea of the death of Jesus is kind of like a huge part of the gospel message. And Paul kind of just goes to that point. Right. It was clear that what we said to you and it was in a public uh, forum. Right. That Christ was crucified. I just want to kind of get to the basics of what. We are talking about, and I wanted to get your attention and remind you, right, that you didn't miss that Christ was crucified, okay? And that's where he's going to kind of then, like, set his argument off of as he continues to kind of talk to them about what they're thinking, what they're believing, and why that's not the path that they want to go down, okay? And so then he kind of boils down his argument into two choices, right? He says, did you receive the Spirit by something you did or something you believed, now, what is something that Paul just, just assumes, right? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
that they receive the Spirit, right? So Paul just assumes that like, they understand that when, you've, when you accept Christ and you hear the gospel message and you believe that Jesus was crucified for your sins, that there is something that happens and that something that happens is that you receive the Spirit of God. And so he takes that just as a fact that they would understand, that they would know within their midst. Now, during that time, right, when Paul is going to different places, there's something that kind of happens after the gospel is preached. You see it happen in Acts, and we kind of focus on that a lot, specifically in the beginning of his gospel ministries. When Paul went to particular places, he preached a message, but then what also happened when Paul preached a message? I guess there's a couple ways you can take this, but I'll see what you guys want to say. So, all right, so that's one way. That's not what I was going for, but that is true. So that's why I was like, let's see, you know, I was like, you might say that because I did focus that on a lot of times. But what, like Paul would go to different locations. It didn't happen in every location, but sometimes what would Paul do in combination with the message? Or what happened when Paul? Okay, he would baptize. Okay. Discipline. Discipline. Man, you got all the things that I'm not looking for. <laughs> and these things are true, right? When Paul went to different places, uh, particularly early on, and Jesus manifested it a lot, right? The thing that accompanied the message was often miracles, right? Things like these works that would happen that were like beyond explanation. It would happen earlier on in the church. When the churches got established, it would, it would happen less and less. And so even, you know, um, I mean, even towards the end of, like, God, you know, Paul's ministry when he's shipwrecked, right? He's bit by a snake, and they're like, oh, that man must be condemned by God. And he just throws the snake off and continues roasting marshmallows, right, or whatever he was doing by the fire. So um, there were things that happened that Paul, you know, had these works that kind of accompanied the things that he did. And so... Um, that was, that was kind of one of those things, right, that, uh, that the receiving of the Spirit sometimes came with, like, a visual manifestation. Sometimes, like, uh, when people early on, like, to kind of show that the Spirit was among them, they saw, like, people would start speaking in tongues, and they would speak in different languages, and that was a manifestation. And so what was it? It was just a confirmation that the Spirit is at work among you. And so in the early church specifically, like, they wouldn't have missed that idea that the Spirit was among them, you know. But that's what Paul kind of takes as, like, you know, self-evident, right, that there was a working of the Spirit, or the Spirit was dwelled within them. And so he says, did you receive the Spirit by something you did, or something that you believed? Now why is this idea of the Spirit being among them kind of just something that they would have understood or assumed? Well, let's go to Ezekiel 36, and you can just either listen. Um, we talked about kind of, uh, you know, when we talk about the new covenant, there's a few places that you can go to. One, you know, is Jeremiah 31, 31, and we, we've, we've looked at, at some of those verses. The other one is Ezekiel 36. I don't think I've kind of gone over these passages, but it fits well within kind of this understanding. Because as the Jews knew that God was going to do something different among them, they were waiting for the Messiah to come, and they were waiting for this idea of a new covenant. And what would this new covenant look like? What would come with it? Well, in Ezekiel 36, 24, you know, Paul says, or Paul says, God says, 
I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Now when we went to, through John 3, we would have kind of looked at that because this was what, you know, uh, when, when uh, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about being born from above and being, you know, washed, um, that he's kind of drawing from this passage. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Jeremiah 31, 31 doesn't say this idea about putting a new spirit, but you will obey, I'll put the law within your heart and you will obey my commands. But you kind of see the parallel there. But here, right, I will put my spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. We're going to also see some parallels where this idea about this land is, is kind of described here, and we're going to see kind of how Paul like fits all of this in together. But I want you to understand kind of like the things that Paul is drawing from and the understanding of what he would have taught and what the Galatians would have understood as well. So when does a person receive the Spirit? At what point would a person receive the Spirit? What's that? The moment of rebirth. And so, what would that look like? And so, Paul, would, Paul might even describe this as, right, if the gospel message is preached, and if we even like took it from, you know, last week when we looked at like 2 Corinthians 4, the gospel is preached, right, to some, they're not going to hear it because it's veiled, right? Like they're only looking at what they're allowed to look at. But then, what does God do? He removes the veil. They believe. And then at some point, is it down the road? Is it after a test? Is it after you know, a certain confession? Or is it immediately that the Spirit dwells within you? Yeah. And Paul, again, is kind of just, again, he's laying out, I mean, I would say it's rhetorical, but it's all of the letter, so it's not like Paul is like waiting for their response. But as he's kind of laying out some of these arguments, he's just like, you know, that like I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of, you know, bringing up things that you would have understood. So it's at that moment, right, that a person has the spirit within you. Okay. So he says, having then begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so we'll get to that in just a second. But again, when we think about kind of the spirit being, being within us, right, that that is a part of who we are as believers. We looked at Romans 8 and kind of said we are spirit-led people. And so there are some things that we've kind of just been talking about, right? But there are things that, you know, um, when we receive the spirit, it's not based on anything that we have done, but solely based on what we believe. So things that maybe, right, the Jews would have said truly gets you accepted by God are what? Do you remember what, like, the big issue? I've already mentioned it, but the Jerusalem Council kind of talked about it. What was one big issue, particularly for the men, right, that, right, circumcision would have been one that they were saying, like, you know, at what point do you need to be circumcised to really be accepted? What might be something else that the Jews would have said would have been important for them to do? 
Okay, so the dietary restrictions, and we've talked about that again in different passages. So leading up to this, we've kind of talked about things. We kind of talked around some of the specifics. So baptism, if you become a convert to Judaism, you would have been baptized. And so that was something that wasn't completely new. And other even even uh, idolatrous religions baptized in pig's blood and things like that. So that was kind of a, something like a marker of um, of being accepted into the faith. Uh, you know, is it a celebration, a Passover, a new moon feast, any of those things, you know, things that are talked about not only in this book, but also others. So those were the things that Paul is just saying, like, right, none of those things preceded you receiving the Spirit. You receiving the Spirit was not based on the works of the, of, of the law, but based on what you believed, right? And again, when we looked at certain passages in the past, we said this is, again, something that we understand. So then where does this need for works kind of creep in? You know, and that's, that's we'll, tr- we'll, we'll try to address that as we go along and follow like Paul's argument. But I want us to kind of like think, you know, somewhere down the line, we think it's important that the things that we do are important. And not that they're unimportant, but they almost rise to a category that eclipses what's really true in order to be accepted in the household of God, right? When Ezekiel says that God will put his spirit in someone, then what does he cause them to do? He calls them to walk in my statutes and obey my rules, right? So there's something about when the spirit comes within you that there are things that you do that also align with the spirit you know, being inside of you. And so he wants to then, you know, again, simplify for his argument what is prior uh, priority in what we're talking about, and that is that the Spirit is within you after you believe. And so when he says in verse 3, are you being perfected by the flesh? Meaning, is it things that you do, right, in your flesh, the obeying of the law, is, are those things causing you to be perfect, causing you to be sinless, causing you to be more like Christ? Is Paul saying that rhetorically, or is he, is he want them to kind of think more deeply about that question? You know, as we, as we look at this letter, again, Paul, you know, and we're only like three verses in, right? Paul starts to lay out these arguments, and there's things that we just kind of can pass over and can skip. But I want us to kind of just, again, think, you know, what is the heart issue that, you know, Paul is getting at? You know, what role does works have in our life? Where does the law come in the life of the Jew or even for the believer? And what are the things that we do that help us in our Christian life? So if we were to answer that question, what are things that we do as believers that you feel like help us in our Christian walk? What's that? Means of grace. Can you be more specific? Like, what are some things that you can think? Okay, teaching of the word. Okay, so and there's a public proclamation, right? And us as as listening to the word of God that is some, that, that we would say is helpful for the life of a believer. I would even say it's beyond helpful. It's commanded, right? That we are a part of that as a believer. What are some other things that are part of our Christian walk? Okay, so the communion with the saints, right? Do not forsake the gathering of the saints for the preaching of the word, but also for the communion of together and, you know, iron sharpening iron and also to be able to exhort and edify and all of those things. What are some other things that we do? Okay, so I heard prayer, 
okay, right? That you, we should pray, and we are commanded to pray. Uh, serving others, right? The things that we are to do, how we can, um, you know, be as a, as a group of believers that, you know, to keep, to get pride, you know, to, or to, to get us from being prideful and to be more thankful. God says that we should serve others, right? We should submit to others. Um, other things. Evangelism. Evangelism, okay? Sharing the gospel. It's just human nature to want to display. That's human nature. Remember the little song, under a basket, this little light of mine, I want to let it. That's human nature. And so the things that we are told to do are to manifest that, to demonstrate that. So I think all the things that we're talking about, he's just reminding you, hey, is to display the things that we've done? Is that what you're saying? Sure. Okay. And you want, and then you want, you should want to share what you have found in the Spirit. You should want to share those things. Well, that's true. Those are the, the outward manifestations. But there's definitely things that we've talked about that is internal, right, that we know that we always are, have to be reminded of. And even encouraged, even if you look at 2 Corinthians 4, right, when he talked about this, like, mission that he's been given, right, this treasure in earthen vessels is to go share the gospel, you know, that's, you know, I, that's, it's always the things like, what are, what are some of the most convicting topics is like, you know, share, share your faith more and evangelize more, or, sorry, share your faith more and pray more, right? There are certain things as disciplines, right, that, that just don't come naturally, Right? Why? Because we're in the flesh, and we've, we've looked at, at many of those things. And so, we'll talk about a little bit more, maybe next week, but, you know, what are the reasons for that, and why do then, you know, where does the idea about works kind of creep in? Is this, yes, one, it, it manifests and shows itself, like you're a believer, um, but even, you know, but is that necessary to convince others of your faith? Well, kind of, kind of like let's 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 think of it, right? The things that we do, right? These habits and disciplines, right? The things that that help us, right? In our walk, right? They can also they can help us, but they can also trap us, right? Um, these disciplines can sometimes, right? I guess if I ask the question, has anyone ever been in a spiritual rut ever in their life? All right, you don't have to answer that. But I feel like at some point, right, prayers become rote. Scripture, um, there's times in your life where Scripture felt more alive than other times in your life. And so then, what does that mean? Does that mean, like, you should abandon that altogether? Or where does that, you know, is that something that, in the end, is not, not worth doing? And that's kind of where then, you know, when, when Paul goes, right? He says in verse 4, he says, right, did you suffer so many things in vain? That idea, that, that word suffer, it's often translated suffer, but it's really did you experience, like all the things that you experienced or all the things that you did, 
are they are they for naught? Are they worthless? This, again, the idea of vain. Paul uses that word lots of times, right? And so, while you know they have, may have um, not had their effectiveness as maybe they had once had at one time of your life, does that mean that they are you know worthless? That something that you just need to abandon altogether? And so. He kind of you know, stops and pauses to kind of like reflect on that idea, right? About the things that we do in order to perfect our faith. But are those things worthless? And so then he kind of gets us back on track in verse 5 when he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, there's that idea again, working miracles among you, that they would have seen would have been evident. Does that happen by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so the Galatians had the benefit of miracles, right, in that time. Sometimes, like, you know, we are enamored by, um, I don't know, I would say it's kind of fantasy or this idea of, like, I loved uh, David Copperfield, not the book, but the, uh, the magician growing up. Like, there was just something about, like, the Statue of Liberty disappear. Like, how did he do that, right? Um, and there was just something, like, fascinating about, uh, about how that worked, right? They would say that they're illusionists, that they're really not doing magic. But there's, again, something about, you know, if you think of, like, Harry Potter and all, of like, the, you know, fantasy, something about, like, saying certain incantations or potions or things that you do, right? There's something that, like, created some sort of power or manifestation, right? Even when Paul, um, actually it wasn't when, when Paul, but when the gospel was preached and John came and, uh, um, came to the group of believers, um, and uh, they started speaking in tongues. There was the Simon, the magician, had said, what do I need to, how much can I pay to, like, have a part of that? And, right, and then Peter, uh, or John, had, like, was it Peter? I think it was Peter. I keep saying John. It's one of them. I think it was Peter. Had, like, rebuked him and said, you know, like, the spirit is not for sale. Because there's kind of this idea, right, what are the things that we do to, pr- to produce, you know, power or miracles and Paul says, it was a manifestation of the Spirit. It was freely given, not by anything you did, but just by what you believed is what caused these things to happen. And Paul quotes this idea you know, by, you know, by quoting Scripture. He says, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so the miracle of being accepted by God and counting counted as right before God, which was what Abraham was accepted at that moment, only took a matter of faith. And that's something that the Jews would have held on to, right? That they would be counted as righteous because of what they believed. So we kind of boil it down so far in what Paul's arguing, right? Is faith is all we need. Faith is all we need. But, sometimes, but works are always there. The things that we do are always there. And that makes sense because God has given us, right, minds, which we're able to believe, but also physical bodies, which we're able to act on. And so we just need to understand the importance as well as the priority of each of these things. And so when he goes to verse 7, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, 
In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So again, people are saying there's things that you need to do amongst you. But, you know, the things that you see that maybe even like the works that people are pointing to, all those things like are done by the Spirit. And how did the Spirit come to you? It was nothing by what you did. It was based on what you believe. We've been saying that ever since the beginning, right? If Abraham is the, is the father of, of the, the Jewish nation, right, then that goes, this idea goes all the way back to the beginning, of where that all started as Abraham as father. And that's where Paul is, again, making his argument. And so, um, what means would the Jews have used to show that they are sons of Abraham? What would they have rested on, saying, I am a son of Abraham? By what means? Okay. So that's true, right? So that, that goes along with the, the Mosaic Covenant. But I, was, I would even say simpler than that. Circumcision is true, but it would be specifically for the men. But how could even, you know, the women take part in that? Yeah, so by birthright, right? So I would say, yeah, I would say the circumcision is showing if you are a true Jew or not. You're in sin if you are not circumcised and you call yourself a Jew. But just going back as I am a son of Abraham goes back just by family birth. If you are outside and converted to Judaism, circumcision would have been the way to have, have shown that or proven that, right? And that was something big. Um, John 8, uh, and let's go there real quick. You know, the, Jesus, when he, he encountered you know, different groups, this kind of, kind of became a line of argumentation. So if we go to um, verse 30, 31, we read that Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered, Well, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And so it's like, well, who is our father, right? So, but they're relying on this idea, right? We, we are sons of Abraham. We're not slaves to anyone. But who's really like rules over them at that time? During Jesus' time, right? Like they weren't like free they were in Roman captivity, but in their minds, because they're sons of Abraham by lineage, that they are free. John the Baptist, right, um, kind of made an argument in Matthew 3, 9, right? He says that, um, don't say we have Abraham as our father, for God can raise up stones as the sons of Abraham. Again, this, this idea of being the sons of Abraham was something that they just took stock in. And then in Luke, 
when uh, Zacchaeus, remember the, the tax collector, he pays back those who had defrauded him. Jesus replies that salvation comes to this house for you are a son of Abraham. This idea about being a son of Abraham was really important. Well, why is being a son of Abraham important? If you want to flip back, well, I'll read some of these verses, but there's kind of two places we'll go. The beginning of Genesis 12, which was probably like our third chapter that we went through, or fourth or fifth chapter that we went through way back when, when we started this series. But let's, get, as a reminder, look at some of these things. We'll just look at a couple verses of why being the son of Abraham was really important to them. Why they, why they could say, like, this is something that we, you know, took, take credence in. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So if you're an Abraham, there is this like worldwide blessing that will happen. And if you're outside of Abraham, or if you dishonor Abraham, what comes to you? A curse, okay? Kind of keep that in mind as we we pick up Paul's argument in just a second. Well, if you flip to chapter 15... Verse 1 says, after these things, and this was after uh, Abraham had an encounter with a priest named Melchizedek, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Elizer of Damascus. And Abraham said, right, so how is the world, how is he going to be a nation? How is he going to be a worldwide blessing? Like, I don't have any offspring. He says, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Right? That's the, that's the verse that Paul is referring to. Right? He's advanced in age. He was given the promise years back, and he's like, I still don't have an heir. And God says, just go outside and look at the stars, and that's how many children you'll have. And he could have said, like, yeah, I still don't have a you know, child, right? But, but Abram said, one, I'm talking to God here, so this must be something like a little bit different than my normal uh, you know, evening. But he believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So um, that blessing seen in Genesis 12, right, was obtained for Abraham by faith. Nothing that Abraham did or Abram did at that time resulted in it being counted to him as righteousness, being accepted by God, being right in the eyes of God came by this idea of faith. And so why is Paul here in these verses establishing that non-Jews are the sons of Abraham? Okay, so one, it's about faith, not birthright. That's kind of the argument that Paul is making. 
What else? What do we see in chapter 12 of Genesis that came with the, the, the blessings to Abraham? If, you accept, if you're accepted as the sons of Abraham, you're what? Right? Yeah. You are blessed. And so for those uh, that are outside of birthright, right, how can they be a part of this blessing that God promised, right? Again, all of the covenants kind of build off of each other. When we talk about Abraham, and then we talk about David, and we talk about even like Moses and the law, and then we talk about the new covenant, right? They're an expansion of what these promises that God had made, kind of building on what God is doing, giving it more definition and clarity as you go along. And so at this point, right, in the church, those outside of the, of the lineage, right, of Judaism would now be accepted into the family of God, will be accepted by this worldwide blessing. We'll go a little bit more in detail about how that looks, because Paul will make that argument in a few verses, but we won't get to that today. And if you're again, Paul reminds them of this, this separation, this kind of dichotomy that if you are a son of Abraham, you're blessed, and if you're not, then you are cursed. And so, um, verse 10 in Galatians 3 For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So, how does Paul make that leap that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, just because you are cursed if you don't abide by all of the law? Okay, good, right? And he just kind of, it seems, again, self-evident. Some of the things that he's just taking, right, you know, like everybody knows that. And he quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26, which Moses said that the law would be their guide into the promised land and that there would be, remember, he put them on these, on these mountains to even kind of make a, an illustration for them that on one mountain, those who follow my law would be blessed. And there was all these abundant things. And we talked about these way back when, when we started this. Um, we got to one of the chapters there. And then everybody else on this mountain, you don't do this, then you will be cursed. A whole chapter devoted to what that looks like. There'll be famine and there'll be, you know, bloodshed and you'll be in captivity and bondage. The things that we saw actually happen when we get to the book of Judges. Um, and, and because of their disobedience, the things that God said would happen would happen, right? That if you don't follow what I say, then there will be a curse. But if you follow what I say, then there will be a blessing. But you got to do all of it in order to have that blessing, Because if you don't do some of it, cursing will come. And, you know, James, in James 2.7, he says, Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has been guilty of all of it. Right? And Paul in Romans 3.9 says, What then? Are we Jews anybody off? No, not at all. For we all have, uh, we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And so you know, Paul, in verse 11 of Galatians 3, quotes Habakkuk 2.4 when he says that it is by faith that the righteous shall live. 
And then likewise, right, Paul says in verse 12 that there are two paths. A path of following the law or a path of following faith. So why is the law not of faith? He makes that statement, but what does that mean? Right. Yeah. And if you even go back to kind of like the argument that Abraham was making, and you could kind of even say like, well, you said, God, that, right, you know, I like we would have this land and the nations would be blessed, but I got to ba- base it off of something that I've experienced, right? He would have believed it or he he would have he would have been able to stand on that promise more assuredly, if he could look at his children. If God said, I want you to look at your son, and he's going to grow up to be a great man, but he didn't have any of that. And he, was, he and his wife were well past childbirth age when he said, don't worry, I'm still making this promise, right? And this promise is going to be fulfilled. So it's not based on anything that you can see or experience. That's law. Law is a rule and a command that you can live out and you can either do or not do, and you can see and experience, but faith is something that is resting on a promise not yet seen. Not yet seen. And it is once you believe and have that faith, then the Spirit comes in you, and you get to experience what it means to follow Christ and have the Spirit dwell among you. Right? Living comes from doing, and blessing comes from faith, right? Not doing comes death or cursing if we're going to follow the law. And so, um, is there something though, you know, and even you kind of see vestiges of that. Is there such a thing as not believing once someone has already believed? I say that because what, what was the quote that Paul is kind of resting this on, right? It was counted to him as righteousness because of his faith. Was there anything that Abraham would have done, undone, would have been able to do to undo that belief or faith? No. Right, yeah, Abraham himself, right, yeah, was disobedient in different areas. So he couldn't undo it. He couldn't undo it, Right. And so even, even back here, you kind of have this idea of like, can I lose my faith? <laughs> I get what you're saying, yeah. So, can I lose my faith? Well, here, like, you know, Paul's kind of resting on this idea, like, once you believe, you've believed, right? So is there a way of, like, walking away from the faith, of this faith not being counted as righteousness later on in life? No, if that was the case, then you never believed in the first place. It never was at one point in your life counted, you were counted as righteous before God. Yeah. Are you reading my notes? That's where I was going. I was like, that was all. You listened last week. <laughs> or if you didn't, you remember, yeah. I mean, what's that? Are you, I don't know, anyway. <laughs> so, you must know scripture, right? <laughs> But that's the idea, yeah, I was, yeah. like, right, once the veil is lifted, right, is there any sort of sense that, like, the veil is put back on you? 
No, I think that's a great picture that we understand. Once the veil is removed, the veil is removed. Well, what about people who walk away from the faith? The veil is never removed, right? The veil was never removed. And so this, this uh, idea, right, that when we look at what that looks like, right, that um, belief, right, comes on, again, that there's different from what the law requires. So, the only thing that we could ever come from the law, because we can't uphold the law, right, the end result is, is a curse, because we can't do it all perfectly. So we must fail to uphold the law at some point, and that's got to be the final outcome. So then, that begs the question, then why do we want to follow the law in the first place, right? Like, why would we want to go, go down that route? And so we'll talk about that, you know, next week as we kind of get through this. But if we're cursed by failing to uphold the law, then how can we be freed from that curse? Well, it goes back to, again, the crucifixion, right? That Paul says, I clearly stayed in the crucifixion. And let me tell you how it happens, right? If we are all under a curse based on the works of the law, then the only way that can be undone is by someone fulfilling the works of the law for us. And in God's wisdom, he allowed that to happen through the means of a curse, which is kind of interesting, right? Because he says, everyone who is hanged on a tree is a curse. He's quoting Deuteronomy 21:22, And he says, if a man is committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. But you shall bury him the same day for a hangman is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. I think it's amazing that the only time that you have this idea about being cursed by God by some point in the law is this specific portion. You know, when, when it was being written, it was the idea of like most people, if you were going to be killed for disobeying something um, in God's law, how, how would that be carried out? Stoning, right? And so... You'd be stoned to death, and then you'd be, you'd be buried. So this idea of like hanging someone on a tree is like a public display. But even in this law, it says, you don't hang him there all night. Go and bury him. Because if you hang him there all night, that guy's cursed by God. And so it's just kind of like, a, hey, like don't do it because that's dishonoring to that person. But then Jesus, that was the means that Jesus would die, was being a curse in order to take away the curse. And so it's kind of amazing when you kind of see like, you know, it just seems like a kind of throwaway phrase at that time. Um, But it was something that obviously was in the plan of God and purposes of God of how it would be carried out later on. So Paul says that through the crucifixion of Jesus, the promised blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles. And what's that promised blessing of Abraham, right? That the Spirit of God through the new covenant promise will come to us not by what we do, but through faith. That faith is through Jesus' sacrificial death, paying our sins, and that death that was a curse because of how it happened. And that curse then released us from our curse under the law. And so again, Paul just kind of steps back. I know we got like through a lot of weeds, went through a lot of verses and all of that, and you can kind of get lost and be like, I don't know what you're talking about right now, but just step back. And just think, right, through all the details and all the scripture and all of that, like Paul is pulling back together like Galatians. Why would you ever think that anything you can do is more important than your faith? And why would you separate that group of people who believe just as you believe because there's something that they're not doing that is a part of a system that 
results in a curse and condemnation and death anyway, right? The way that we are drawn together, the way that we are a family of God, the way that we are a church and a body of believers is what we believe. And we have different backgrounds and we have different opinions and different ways that, you know, we raise our children and handle our finances and all of that. But all together, right, we stand before God, not condemned, but blessed because of our faith in Christ. And that's what unites us together. So why would you go to something that separates us? We'll look at this a little bit more in depth and kind of think like, yeah, why would we do that? Um, but that'll be for, for next week. So we'll kind of pause there, but I just want us to like raise up above the, the trees a little bit and kind of think, you know, um, you know, what's kind of the argument that Paul's making? Because we fall susceptible to some of this as well.